0: Welcome to Cerebronas. I'm Yvette. And I'm Cynthia, and this is a Chiquitasod. We're two Latinas from working-class immigrant families navigating law school and bringing y'all raw, critical analysis of the law, current events, and personal politics. Why? Because we want to break down barriers
1: set up by elite institutions and democratize knowledge. For this episode, we bring you a panel that the Stanford Human Rights Center Specifically, a law student, three uh, L with me, named Megna, organized about why we should abolish ICE. The three panelists that we had were Clara Long, who works at the Human Rights Watch, works for Human Rights Watch, uh, Bianca Santos, who is an attorney that I worked with at a nonprofit called Pangea Legal Services, and Yadira Sanchez, who's an organizer, who uh, organizes with the California Immigrant Youth Justice Alliance. And I moderated the discussion, um, and we're really excited to bring this to you because I'm sure many of you are already on board,
0: but the conversation, I think, really elucidated why we do need to abolish ICE. Before we like, do a whole little check-in, though, I did want to give out a few announcements. First, we're not going to be releasing regular episodes for a while. Yvette, you're, she's studying for the bar. We're all very proud of her, and it's going to be amazing. So we want to make sure she has plenty of time to study. Um, And then also today, Monday, we will be releasing on our blog and on Instagram a voter's guide for those of us who are in California and voting in the primaries. I took a look at the ballot and there's so much stuff on there and I wasn't sure who to vote for and I like have been looking into it, asking people who I trust who to vote and so we'll be putting out a voter's guide that's like easy to share and we definitely recommend you share. it. On that note though a little bit, in case i just talked to a good friend of mine who was like oh i don't vote and this is why and i think her reasons were very legitimate but i think there's a lot of reasons why to vote so in case anybody out there is not super convinced to vote but is registered to vote or is thinking about registering to vote like let's talk a little bit about why you should vote so yvette why do you even though even though you understand why Mm -hmm. like all these institutions are so fucked up and why like everything is so so rigged why do you still like take the time to vote Honestly, I think that the
1: outcome in the last presidential election really elucidated for me why I need to vote. I was in the camp of people that was genuinely shocked at the fact that we had elected Donald Trump. And I like, I think it's too simplistic to say that the political system is rigged. And so we shouldn't participate in it at all because either way, we're going to be oppressed. Because I think that that is true. But the Through this last presidential election, I realized that there's a spectrum of shittiness. And like, (laughs) I think it's important to mitigate the harm. Like, you know, Hillary Clinton would have still been wreaking havoc on black and brown communities in different ways. But like, maybe we wouldn't, but we likely wouldn't have this really serious stress of nuclear war. And I think that's like nothing to be scoffed at. Like, I think that what we're seeing right now is really scary. All the things that Jeff Sessions are doing is doing are like truly, truly evil, um, and I think that like the DOJ AG is always going to be doing evil things, but like, it, like I said, it's a spectrum, and Jeff Sessions is like extra, extra, extra evil. Same with like the EPA. Yeah, with everything. Yeah, and so it is really time consuming, um, and it can make you really sad when you know you have a, you have hope for change to happen more quickly, um, but. I think that if you have the privilege to vote, if you are a U.S. citizen, then you should be you should be engaging. And then the other the one argument that I've heard that I find really convincing too is like I think a lot of people think that not voting is a neutral act, but it's actually not neutral because in not voting, you strengthen the votes of the people who do show up. Mm-hmm. Um, you give their vote more weight. Mm-hmm. And if you think about, like, who's going to feel most entitled to show up to the ballot polls, it is going to be, like, it is white people who feel like this is their country, and I don't feel comfortable giving more weight to that group of people.
0: Yeah. For me, like, the three reasons that I think it's important to vote, one, I've seen, like, documentaries on how much people had to fight for like different groups of the population to vote and so for me it's just like an homage to them because like it was a violent like the to get like for women the right to vote like it was a violent violent process and if you think about like how many people like suffered trying to get to the like to the voting booth and all the different pain that they've gone through for me even if like i think a vote is meaningless which i don't think but if i did think that I would just do it for the sake of doing it as homage to them and, like, everything they went through. And then another reason is I think it's important to, like, vote against certain things. So, like, even if you're not excited about what you're voting for. So, for example, like, one of the things that I'm – we're going to be putting out on our voter's guide is to, like, vote against anyone who's a district attorney (laughs) and running for, like, a judge. Mm -hmm. Because it's, like, I don't want these prosecutors to think they can just, like – be a prosecutor and then go into elected office. So mm-hmm. I think most judges are former prosecutors. Exactly, that's, that's a fact. Yeah. and that's awful. So I'm gonna go like vote against everybody who's a district attorney. Like you know we don't know anything about these candidates anyways, but we know what their job is. So I'm at least gonna vote against them. Okay. So my third reason for voting is that even though I have little faith in that this will happen, like people do look at who's a voting block you know and so like if more people who are like ethnicity latino or whatnot or latinx are voting then i think that will make some politicians pay more attention and give like people who are trying to sit down at the table people who are still trying to do negotiations at the table about policy it will give them a little bit more power and like i'm okay with that you know, i i want them to have a little bit more power even though i think like it's the long run it's like not the right avenue and i think we need to do other types of activism like Leaving no stone unturned, I want exactly, people who are yeah. in the room to have more power and to be able to say, like, I'm speaking for, like, a 20% of the voter block. So you need to listen to me if you want to win. So those are some reasons to vote. So, But turning away from that, Yvette, tell us about this panel. Like, is there anything people should know? Or is there anything that you didn't get to say on the panel that you want to say now before folks listen to it? I think this this came up because
1: someone asked the question, what would abolishing ICE really look like, you know, pragmatically or in a concrete way like does that mean that there won't be any immigration enforcement blah 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 and i i answered the question and i said that you know a world without immigration enforcement would actually be a world where racism would be lessened because immigration enforcement has always been racist mm-hmm. the mexico border became regulated when chinese migrants were trying to use mexico as a port of entry and the u.s had decided that they wanted to exclude chinese migrants from entering the u.s that was literally like the that was the impetus for the beginning of the, re- the regulation of the border. Mm-hmm. And then also, ICE is a post-9-11 phenomenon. It began, I think, in 2006. And that's important to point out for us millennials because that was shocking for me to learn even mm-hmm. because of how much I've thought of ICE as a normal part of our society. And it's actually like, really not. Like, we don't even have to look that far back to try and imagine a world without ICE. Um, That's such a good point. Yeah, and then the last thing is just that I I wish this is something that racists would understand. It's like these people who want to keep Black and Brown migrants out of the U.S. can do so counterintuitively by supporting deregulating the border, because like contrary to this popular myth, like there you know not everybody wants to live in the U.S. like. Especially for people who are coming for economic reasons and for people who are living in Mexico or in close proximity to the U.S. and who want to come for economic reasons, the option of migrating into the U.S. for work and then leaving and spending the rest of the year with their families was really appealing to a large group of people before the border was regulated. And so before the border was regulated, a lot of migration from Mexico was like single men, or other people who were going into agriculture and coming into the u.s during harvest getting their money and then going back to mexico to live with their families but the re- the regulation of the border resulted in um there being higher stakes in leaving
0: mm-hmm. you know
1: people didn't want to leave because they weren't sure they were going to be able to come back in mm-hmm. um and so they ended up staying and as a result they brought their families with them mm-hmm. and so I-, I wish that people would understand that that like deregulating the border doesn't even necessarily mean, it won't mean at all, that there's gonna be a flood of people coming in. Like the effects could actually be really counterintuitive if, if we look at history and see what history can teach us. Let's just listen to the conversation. So I'll start with Yadira, who's at the very left of me. Yadira Sanchez is a coordinator and organizer with the California Immigrant Youth Justice Alliance. And she has long been personally and politically invested with Bay Area youth activism to stop unlawful deportations and curb the human rights abuses of ICE, including a highly publicized campaign to stop the deportation of her own grandfather at the hands of ICE. The CIYJA is a statewide alliance of immigrant youth-led community organizations from San Diego to Sonoma County that aims to create solidarity among immigrant communities and work with other anti-enforcement and anti-criminalization movements across California. The organization seeks to establish a progressive and diverse immigrant youth-led organizing efforts in the state of California through the development of community-based undocumented immigrant youth organizations and is invested in supporting educational, organizing, and advocacy efforts by the member organizations for the enhancement and improvement of the lives of immigrant youth and their families in California. Yidira has also been heavily involved in education, especially for undocumented and marginalized youth, and organizing for domestic workers' rights. Please join me in welcoming Yidira. And to Yidira's right is Bianca Santos, who I've had the pleasure of working with. She is an accomplished removal defense attorney representing asylum seekers before the San Francisco Immigration Court at the nonprofit Pangea, a legal services organization whose mission is to stand with immigrant communities and to provide services through direct legal representation and community empowerment through policy advocacy, education, and legal empowerment efforts. Bianca also serves as the director of the international human, as the international human rights director for Pangea. In addition to this, Bianca presently serves on the steering committee of the International Migrant Bill of Rights Initiative, which she earlier led as program director. As program director for the IMBR, she has led the revision of the IMBR text and commentaries, the drafting of an IMBR handbook, and the creation of indicators based on the IMBR. In addition, Bianca has also worked for the State Department Bureau of Consular Affairs, Directorate of Overseas Citizen Services in the Office of Policy Review and Interagency Liaison where she analyzed the implementation of Hague private international law conventions. Please join me in welcoming Bianca. And here to my very left there's, is Clara Long. She researches immigration and border policy with the US program at Human Rights Watch. Prior to joining Human Rights Watch, she was a teaching fellow at Stanford's own international human rights clinic. Clara has researched and advocated for human rights in Bolivia, Brazil, Panama, and the United States, including litigation in the inter-American system. She is the co-producer of an award-winning documentary, Border Stories, about perspectives on immigration enforcement from both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border. She has represented detained immigrants with the Florence Immigrant Refugee Rights Project <laughs> and covered Venezuela as a freelance journalist. Clara graduated with honors from Harvard Law School and holds master's degrees from the London School of Economics and Environment and Development and from Stanford's graduate program in journalism. Clara speaks Spanish, French, and Portuguese. Please join me in welcoming Clara. Clara. So as no to, 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 right. to start off as an opening question for all of you, um, I wanted to know if each of you could talk to us about your experiences in immigration activism or documenting human rights abuse in the context of immigration, what you've seen and what you've learned, and in particular about, the, about ICE and the direction it has taken, especially in the Trump era. Sorry.
2: OK, great. Well, uh, first off, thanks so much for having me here today. Uh, it's a real honor to be on the panel with you guys and to be with you as well. Um, the <clears throat> there's, there's not that much good to say about the Obama administration's approach to immigration enforcement and immigration policy. Uh, what we can, I mean, we, we saw an enormous uptick in enforcement activity and uh, the deportations of people uh, who are deeply rooted in US communities. Uh, who have homes, families, jobs, uh, and who were ripped away from them, especially in the beginning of the the Obama administration, under very harsh laws passed in the mid-90s that made deportation sometimes an automatic consequence of sometimes very minor criminal convictions. Um, However, uh, at the end of the Obama administration, due to some amazing advocacy and activism um, by groups that are represented on this panel, including Um, We had both the DACA program, uh, a program that protected uh, immigrant youth who had arrived in this country as children, and um, the Obama administration had announced a set of enforcement priorities that to some extent shielded people with deep connections to the United States um, and who had not been swept up into uh, the over-inclusive criminal justice system uh, from from deportation and from enforcement, um, that all changed uh, nearly the moment that the trump administration came into the, came into office and I think you know without overstating uh, the advances of the Obama administration, we can be truly concerned about the changes that we've seen in enforcement over the past year and a half uh, an increase in 40 percent of arrests of people living in the interior of the us were much more likely to be deeply rooted in our communities, Uh, a a request for massive increases in detention, Um, and uh, a very explicit uh, taking the shackles off of an agency that, even under the Obama administration, uh, was never fully controlled by the political wing. Uh, And in fact, I was in a meeting recently with someone who was very high up in DHS under the Obama administration, and one one thing they said was very interesting, which is that we never should have believed that we could get control of ICE, um, because that was not possible without legislative reform. Uh, We went in there, we were policy people, we are ahead of this agency, and um, they didn't listen to us, because it's an agency that has a momentum, and the momentum um, has... uh, a, a nativist goal uh, to forward and, and increase deportations and detentions. Um, so, you know, at Human Rights Watch, we've been working on immigration uh, now as a, as, a, as a human rights issue. Of course, we also work around the world in, in about 90 countries. Uh, we've been working on immigration for over 20 years. Um, we started to look at the issue of deportations very squarely uh, about 10 years ago when we started to do work, especially on people with green cards who were ripped apart from family uh, because of criminal convictions. And over the past, uh, just our work in the Trump administration, I'll say very briefly, we've been continuing to look very closely at abuses in immigration detention, uh, especially subpar medical care that causes deaths. Um, And um, we've also looked at the ways in which the the, uh, removal of any sort of Idea of enforcement priorities under the Trump administration has uh, has made this this uh, really is a massive human rights crisis of uh, of deportations of people with deep roots in the United States much much worse. So I'll just leave it there. I don't know if you wanted more sort of that's great. personal engagement <laughs> with this fight, but uh, that's
3: that's the framing that I'll offer. Bianca. Mm-hmm. Um, I go, Claire, on a couple of things. Thank you, and thank you for thank you. I'm like excited to see so many people in this room. Uh, really excited, and I, I and I'm excited for people who are here because this is what they want to do for their career, or people who just want to be aware of what's going on, and they're going to take it to another place in their career. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, Okay, so similarly, I wanted to kind of pull back. This deportation machine is something that's been bipartisan, and it's been built up over, it, uh, built up under Obama. It started with Clinton, he set up expedited removal. Bush deported about two million people, and then Obama fine-tuned this deportation machine and made it bigger and deported more people than Bush had. And now, similar, there's a feeling that this machine that was had bipartisan support over the past two decades has been unleashed. Just just unleashed. And to get kind of specific uh, on ICE tax, so ICE has been you know, deporting and ripping people and families apart under Obama and under previous administrations. But specific tactics that have increased under Trump. Um, Claire mentioned collateral arrests, um, increase in raids. And even more recently, there's just more more things that keep coming. Uh, Disregard for sensitive locations. So a decision to go after people in schools, to go after people in courts, to go after people um, in hospitals. Recently, there's been uh, released an MOU between ORR. And I'm going to try to stay away from acronyms, or maybe use acronyms and not acronyms Um, I know this is recorded for the podcast, too. But um, kids, when they come here, and they're unaccompanied, they get put in an agency that's not the Department of Homeland Security, it's under Health and Human Services, and that's intentional. Um, and there's this understanding that the Office of Refugee Resettlement can treat, can, and can understand the kids, kids who are fleeing and protect kids better, who are fleeing violence and uh, who qualify for special protections. Um, their kids are processed under ORR, and now uh, ICE has an agreement to share information with ORR, and this hasn't happened before. So uh, ICE is going in and they want to put information about who they think are gang members with zero accountability, zero reason, you know, someone can live in a neighborhood. Okay, let's flag them for gang. Um, And then they want to also share information the other way. So ORR is now supposed to give information about sponsors for these kids when they go out, which is just then creates this for anyone to uh, go pick up a kid and and bring them in their home when they're released. So we've seen this, also this this going after sensitive locations. Um, They've, and you know, I know this is about ICE, but in the work that we do in our practice, it's hard to separate ICE from the entire deportation machine, which includes the border uh, agency, CBP, and it includes the court system. EOIR, which is under the executive office, and those are, you know, the judges are under the executive office, and the government attorneys who are on the other side when we're presenting cases in court, which, you know, we're not, we call OCC, uh, known as OCC. All of these agencies have been, um, they have changed their policies, are fighting harder. Are not agreeing on anything ICE has has taken away prosecutorial discretion. So it's really just this, um, this shift in everything becoming everything becoming harder and really more of a fight at every level of the deportation machine stage.
4: You oh. Yes. Hi everyone, thank you so much again also for having me part of this panel. Um, so I'll be discussing a little bit like, personally how I got engaged into organizing for immigrant rights and also some of the trends that as organizers we're facing when we're fighting for against the deportations of, uh, of people in the United States. And so um, I started organizing uh, back in uh, 2012 after the failure of the Federal Dream Act um, um, that has failed for the past decade. Um, and so with that, uh, through the, the mobilization and activism and organizing efforts of undocumented youth, uh, there was this new movement right, that, that gave birth to the undocumented, unafraid movement that essentially pushed and pressured the Obama administration to uh, to uh, get a uh, deferred action, which is now we know as DACA. And so through that, uh, there was a lot of momentum for undocumented youth to continue to uh, fight for a broader uh, fight for not just undocumented youth, for entire communities. Um, through that, um, I was one of the many who was left out of deferred action because deferred action is very, uh, it has a very specific criteria. And so a lot of us that were uh, left out of uh, DACA, uh, which essentially gives you, as mentioned, a work permit and a relief of, from deportation for two years. Um, uh, a lot of us were like, well, we know that this is a uh, piecemeal for, for our communities and that we deserve more than just a program that is not even a law, right? It's a program that at any given moment could be taken away and foreshadowing now to today, we, we know that that's, that was true. Um, and so we started organizing, I started organizing in protection for immigrant rights in general. Um, and, and as mentioned, in um, during the Obama administration, a lot of our tactics was to push the Obama administration to pressuring them to shame them about the hypocrisy that the administration was portraying on a, a bigger level, that that was, uh, we're not separating families, but felons. That was like their whole slogan, not, not deport, fam- uh, deport felons, not families. And in reality, we knew that that wasn't true, that in reality, uh, people, including members of my family, were being deported. I had an uncle who was uh, deported to Mexico, And uh, soon after that, uh, ICE uh, targeted my grandfather, who at the moment was 65 years old. Um, And this was during uh, the Priority Enforcement Program, or acronym is PEP, um, that before that that we had uh, secure communities, right? The whole purpose was for police officers to also engage as ICE officers to detain people. And so those programs continue to insi- persist in, d- in different ways with different names, but they continue to be part of our li- uh, of our present lives. And so through the enforcement priority programs, there was different priorities for people who were getting detained. Now we know with the Trump administration, there's no longer priority levels. Everyone who is undocumented is a priority. And that's what we're seeing. Uh, in 2015, when my grandfather was apprehended, was basically harassed by six ICE officers in front of his home. While he was getting ready to go to work, um, they detained him. And uh, the whole campaign that we launched nationally, uh, it was one because we were exposing the injustices of the immigration system, the hypocrisy of being, we're deporting families. And here you had a 65-year-old man who was on his way to work getting apprehended or getting kidnapped by ICE. Uh, we were also exposing the ways that they were lying to us uh when we would try to get a hold of where they were taking my grandfather. No one was able to give us an answer, and they would always give us a runabout like uh commun- members from the community will be calling uh the the detention offices and they would be they their their um answers to us was. We cannot give you information because you are not an attorney or you're not a member of his family. When I called myself, they they told me the same thing, that I was an attorney and I wasn't able to get information. Meanwhile, that was happening. My grandfather was already placed in a deportation van to be deported to the US-Mexico border. And that was because he had an old removal order, uh, and his deportation was getting expedited uh, that way. and so we were exposing the, the injustice of the system, but we were also exposing the lies that we continue to hear. And so we created this hashtag ICE Lies, because that was, uh, throughout this process, that was uh, something that we encountered. Um, fortunately, through organizing efforts, uh, my grandfather was uh, released that same day. He, the van literally returned uh, from before they got to the border and he was released. However, the other folks that were inside of this van when, weren't released and they were deported. And so the trends that we're, we're seeing is that right now, we're not able to pressure ICE to, to give prosecutorial discretion. And that we know that ICE officers, everyone, CVP ICE officers, ICE agents, uh, have this this power to essentially decide whether they let you go or not. And so a lot of our tactics were to pressure them to, to create this prosecutorial discretion that they had and at the moment, we're seeing that more expedited orders, similar to what happened with my grandfather, are happening now. Uh, there is a low level of prosecutorial discretion and also high amounts of bonds, or even that has now changed. And I think you can talk more
1: about that. Um, but. Uh, but yeah, I'll stop right there. <laughs> Thanks, Yadira. I actually had a follow-up question for you. Um, we have seen reports recently of activists being targeted as a means of retaliating against their organizing efforts. I'm thinking, Kendra Pavlos in Arizona, the reproductive justice activist; Ravi Rockbeer in New York, and Claudia Reda from LA, among many others. Can you speak to how this is impacting organizing, if at all? And is this a tactic that you feel has been intensified under this administration?
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, obviously, as we as we share undocumented people, immigrants have always been under attack, under threats, um, and so with definitely with the new administration, the Trump administration, those attacks have definitely been intensified. Um, I think it's interesting for me to see the shift of of people now being engaged in conversations like this to abolish ICE and to stop the deportations because. Uh, prior to the Trump administration, we were shouting <coughs> on the streets, shut down ads, I slides, undocumented on a break, and um, those voices would constantly get co-opted, or the mainstream media would constantly uh, co-opt our message, right, of the good versus the bad immigrant, and so now with the Trump administration, they know the power and the strength that we have when we organize and come together, and so definitely this targeted uh, deportations or uh, of, of, of activists uh, such as Claudia Arreda, she's actually my friend and now works with me at the California Immigrant Youth Justice Alliance. And so uh, before they targeted her, they targeted her family. And so they, uh, uh, they targeted her mother and her mother was being uh, detained in San Diego. And uh, Claudia launched a public campaign to release her mother uh, because also something that is happening now is that the Border Patrol's agents are not staying within the region, which is supposed to be 100 miles from the border. They're actually now going all the way to L.A. County to, uh, to target specifically Latino uh, uh, people, uh, families. And so while Claudia was uh, fighting for the deportation, against the deportation of her mother, um, through all of this effort, one morning while she was coming out of her house, to move her car, uh, all of a sudden, she was still in her pajamas. And all of a sudden, her mom wasn't, um, she didn't come back home. And so uh, uh, and so this created, obviously, a lot of fear amongst all of us, because we know that we need to take our precautions. And so now, our conversations, we talk about cybersecurity and also um, something that we did when the Trump administration uh, was a new administration. Uh, we gave each other our emergency contact uh, information and an emergency plan. so essentially what that looked like in the event that one of us was getting detained you would have a package of our information uh, emergency contact our a, a, a number which is the alien number that that's how immigration system classifies you they don't see you as a human being with your name they actually see you with a number right and so we would give all the information to each other and that was't an, coming from a paranoia perspective, that wasn't coming from uh, us being like, they're going to come after all of us, but it was just like a mere reflection of our reality. And it was a precaution, and it's still a precaution measure that we, we take, uh, because we know that this uh, targeted detentions are getting intensified. Uh, but we also, uh, while doing that, we want to uh, continue to be uh, in resistance and continue to defend our rights and continue to uh, create our consciousness and awareness and continue to fight for the liberation of our people because we know that the Trump administration is operating, it wants us to operate under fear tactics. Um, I don't know if many of you uh, remember, but when the Trump administration happened, there was like an attack on indigenous, uh, indigenous people with the uh, the pipeline. Uh, there was an attack on Muslim vans. There was an attack on taking away DACA. So it was. It's an attack on all of us, and that's how we need to continue to see it. That an attack on one of our uh, one of our, our folks is an attack on all of us. And so when we talk about immigrant rights, uh, we are not only defending. Uh, um, our families, but also defending the many folks that continue to be criminalized and be continue to be incarcerated by being racially profiled by by the laws that the administration continues to perpetuate. And so, yes, uh, it has changed, but we're going to continue to resist and hold the
1: line as much possible. Thank you, um, Bianca. This was a question for you, but I feel like anybody can answer if they feel inclined to do so. Um, in doing direct legal services, it can sometimes feel like you're giving legitimacy to an unjust system, but also Pangea has this long-term vision for a world where the right to travel is actually realized. And so, how do you hold both of those things at the same time, like working towards something like universal representation, but also a world without borders?
3: Uh, yeah, that's I kind of have two responses to that, and so I'll give you know I'll give the first one, and then I'll go to the second one. The first is that our vision is a place where people have a right to move. And our mission has three prongs, and one of those is direct services, and that's a really important part of our mission. And the other two are equally important, though, and that's policy advocacy and community empowerment. And so we hold each of those three pieces, and we really, we really feel the need to do the others, to do the, the policy advocacy and the community empowerment kind of precisely for that reason because we can see what's happening in an individual case and then we can use that and bring that to to the other pieces the other parts of work we do. And 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 I really want to focus on that too. I mean, we're a small organization. Um, it's not like these three program areas parts of our mission are separate. They're it's just they're not <coughs> siloed. They're just constant there's just constantly feeding each other. So, um, we hear what what someone experiences in detention and so then uh, you know, we'll do some advocacy about, we'll do some um, media around that. And then when that person gets out of detention, we encourage them, we, uh, we, we give them space to be able to do the advocacy themselves. And I think we think that our approach at Pangea is that um, our clients' voices are the most powerful or one of the most powerful tools we have. So we really try to bring, kind of bring the direct services into the policy advocacy and the community empowerment. And just yesterday there was an advocacy day in Sacramento called Immigrant Day where um, people and organizations from around the, around the state went to Sacramento and talked to the state reps and uh, one of our, one of my colleagues went and two of our clients who had been previously detained went and it was those clients who were speaking and sharing their stories and making their points which is more powerful than than us, than, than a lawyer giving it secondhand. So, um, so we really, f- they really feed each other, uh, all areas of the wor- of the work. <clears throat> and then I'll add, as far as the direct services, we also, our approach to each case is, is that every case is winnable, um, and we are going to fight every case. And that's an approach that it not necessarily all organizations have. We don't take mm-hmm. removal orders. We see, we see every case is winnable and we're gonna work on it until, until, it's, until it's won, until we've done everything we possibly can. And if everyone did that, then the machine wouldn't work. I mean, if everyone had, uh, if everyone had due process, and this is like what we really think, if everyone had due process, and if, everyone had, if there were universal representation, um, and everyone had a good lawyer, it would be untenable. the 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 detention and uh, the deportation machine would be untenable so we really want to throw that into every case that we do
1: thank you and Clara um human rights watch has shifted its policy on the criminalization of drugs after noticing the devastating effects of the war on drugs and how destructive of an impact that had um on Mm -hmm. communities of color now, given the harsh impacts that we're witnessing of criminalizing migration and policing borders, has Human Rights Watch at all considered shifting its policy on criminalizing migration?
2: <laughs> I'm really impressed that you are asking this question, because um, the conversation is nascent inside Human Rights Watch. and question. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I am a real proponent of the position that you reference, which is that we need to consider shifting our policy on, on borders, or at least clarifying that um, our policy on borders uh, needs to reflect the fact that people move, and that that is a reality of the world. Um, migration flows have momentum, uh, and they do not stop. Uh, when uh, states impose harsh measures that increase deaths at the border um, that uh, or even um, that increase detentions, uh, which can be very harmful psychologically, uh, physically, uh, for people detained, um, these repressive policies inevitably cause harms. And so I think the question from a human rights perspective has to be, uh, do, what do we do then with a legal framework that very explicitly recognizes um, the rights of states to regulate their borders? Um, <clears throat> there are lots of cases in which um, states do have rights to regulate um, policy, public policy uh, areas, such as uh, the legality of drugs. But from a human rights perspective, uh, the harms that such regulation causes has to be taken into account. Um, and I think from, the, from the, the research that we've already done, and I think we're, we should be and we will be doing more research, uh, we can say that there are um, contexts all over the world, including the Mediterranean and including the US-Mexico border, um, where we are um, seeing enormous humanitarian harms of, of border uh, repression policies. Um, so it's an ongoing conversation. It's one that um, I have, will admit there are not everybody in the organization uh, is of my view on, um, but something certainly that um, we need to continue, continue to look at. Great.
1: Thank you. Um, this, I want to ask one more question of all three of you, and then we can open it up for questions from the audience. Um, even though ICE very much still exists and is a constant threat in people's lives, How do you, in your own work or in your personal life, live towards, or live as if, ICE didn't exist? I
4: was like, that's a trick question. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um,
4: I can go ahead. Um, Yeah, no, for me, uh, personally, um, it's hard to to operate under in a country where ice is constantly in your face, <laughs> uh, you hear about ice every day, um, and and I think someone mentioned like ice takes forms in different ways, and so uh, for us is not only to fight against ice, but also the ongoing collaboration that exists. Uh, for example, uh, Jeff Sessions, the general attorney, uh, having really strong ties with the sheriff's departments in California, and so. The sheriff's departments are now operating um, to essentially carry out their, the, the, the work of the deportation machine. Um, they are, uh, n- 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 you know, we have a lot of bad sheriffs in California. And so uh, our organization, CJA uh, has been uh, one of the, the strong uh, part, uh, organizations to tackle this issue because uh, we do see that this is a, a direct threat. And we're seeing uh, with the continuous lawsuits that Jeff Sessions is is having against California, um, and one of them is to uh, sue the state for sanctuary laws, such as the new state law of uh, the Values Act, and m- and many other uh, uh, bills that have that continue to want to protect immigrant rights. And so it's hard for us, for me, to operate under a country where our our, our human humanity continues to be uh, a threat, and we continue to. Um, justify why are we here and for us is to like continue to fight for that liberation of no borders of no uh, to abolish ICE but also to abolish any other state agency that will continue to replicate state violence in our lives and so uh, we know that for example uh, every time that we do presentations we show the video from Baji because uh, it really like gets to the core of the matter that why uh, immigrants, are, the, the similar way that immigrants are being criminalized is the similar way or approaches that the black community is also getting criminalized or has been criminalized for the longest. And until we don't see the liberation of black undocumented immigrants, none of us will see that liberation. And so it's us continue to push the boundaries of, um, of, of that liberation. And that to us is not citizenship um, because we know that citizenship will not guarantee us Uh, our liberation, and that is, uh, to me, that is no borders, access to quality education, access to universal health care, access to to many other resources that, that, at the moment, they're limited or non-existent. And so, um, yeah, it's hard to to say, um, but I'm I'm happy that these conversations are continuing to uh, arise because there is so much more that we need to like dissect uh, in order for us to continue to move in this world where we don't have eyes or any other of those agencies. Um,
2: yeah, I I think um, just to pick up on one thread of what you were just saying, you know, there's – there is the reality that Congress is – doing much or much good. Um, there's the reality that the administration is seeking to scapegoat, criminalize, and, and fearmonger about immigrants. Mm-hmm. But there's also the reality that there are local and state fights to be won around this country. Um, mm-hmm. And they are on the table for the taking. <laughs> um, and, and I would urge everyone to learn about and to get engaged um, with what they are. I mean, one of, has, one of them has been mentioned already, and that is the fight towards universal representation. California um, took an enormous step last year and dedicated a, a, a hefty pot of money towards increasing the number of lawyers who were representing detained immigrants here in the state. But they did it in a way that reinforces this dumb and <laughs> Badly, uh, you know, and, and criminalizing felons, not families, uh, rhetoric, uh, which we, which we really need to get away from. Um, and they barred people with certain criminal convictions from even the right to have an appointed lawyer. So there's more work to be done to push California to truly recognize a, a right to representation. That, that's a campaign that needs to continue. Um, the the Sessions lawsuit uh, that that you did a. You did a Mentioned is everybody, you know, we're, we spent a lot of time talking about the Values Act and the the really important ways that ICE is trying to use um, local law enforcement to sweep people up into a deportation dragnet. But that's actually not the only thing that the Sessions lawsuit challenges. Interestingly,
5: mm-hmm. it
2: challenges, well, two other bills, but one other that I'll talk about that all of our organizations have worked on. Um, That's a bill called Dignity Not Detention that actually asked and and dedicated some money to the California AG's office to go into immigration detention centers in the state and do reports and and see what the sort of public safety, public health threats that were happening inside those detention centers, some of which are county jails and some of which are are private companies that are contracted uh, to hold immigrants uh, for ICE. And um, you know that's that's uh, part of what the DOJ thought of when they thought of the when, the ways that they wanted to shut California down. They wanted to say, no, uh, we're gonna we're gonna continue to try to hide those abuses as, as much as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, but does point to you know what is potentially really interesting and. Um, challenging model to get states involved in uncovering detention abuses, which is to get their law enforcement officers in there to say, hey, you know, uh, not treating someone for two years for colon cancer until he has a mass that protrudes from his abdominal wall and bleeds to death uh, is not okay. <laughs> and, um, and and it's something that, that ICE can't hide. Um, so, I mean, I guess that's not, it's a way of um, perhaps Pretending that the federal government doesn't exist and not quite <laughs> but I, but I do think it's a it's a space in which we should all be um, having our you know be, be aware of and sort of be tracking as as best we can
3: i'll I'll just add briefly uh in my work it's it's hard to go day to day as if ICE doesn't exist but um what I try to do is know that they create outsized fear and that they break their own regulations and break the law all the time. Mm -hmm. So I try to, you know, put them in their place and know they pretend to be police. They break their own regulations and that's stuff that we can fight against. So I try to kind of go day to day, keeping them in their box. Mm -hmm. And then also, I think both mentioning kind of this like long, not losing the long term vision of, um, of abolishing immigration detention in a day in which ICE doesn't exist.
1: Great, thank you. Uh, does anyone have questions?
6: Thanks all of thank you so much for being here and for a really interesting conversation. I, I guess my question is about what abolishing ICE means, or I suppose what a world without ICE should look like. Um, I mean, does it, is it a world where immigration enforcement continues but it's done by a less appalling agency? Is it a world where there's <laughs> dramatically scaled back or even no interior enforcement of immigration law at all? Is it a world with not one more deportation? I mean, what is the, in a world where, the, where a movement to abolish ICE succeeds, what does it look like the next day?
2: I can answer part of that. Um, I think certainly the just to recap the story of immigration detention in the United States, which I think is an important context to have, um, You know, we've all made reference to these 1996 laws that basically made it much easier both to deport and detain people. And in 1996, the US detained about 5,000 people per year. Um, the Trump administration's latest budget request asked for funds to detain 51,000, sorry, 5,000 people per night, excuse me, that's totally wrong, 5,000 people per night. Um, the Trump administration has asked for uh, funds to detain 51,000 people per night. That translates to about a half a million people a year, um, and that's occurring in this patchwork of about 200 facilities uh, around the country that is about 60 to 70 percent private facilities. These companies like Geo CCA or Core Civic uh, Management and Training Corporation, Emerald, uh, and also uh, a number of really Crappy county jails in sometimes really, um, really quite isolated locations. So the impact of that is not just the kinds of abuses that we've all. I mean, we've mentioned a lot of the kinds of abuses, but just to sort of lay it out, you know, there are conditions problems. There's there's access to medical care, um, treatment of people with disabilities, overuse of isolation that is you know linked to uh, a number of suicides over the years, um, but. But there's also this other reality, which is that it's, it causes a massive due process crisis. So that you're much, much more likely, if you're detained, not to get an attorney um, and not to prevail, even if you have a good case uh, against deportation. Um, so for that reason, and for a lot of other, you know, for, for all of those reasons, the detention system as it exists now cannot continue uh, in a rights-respecting manner. And for, when, for me, when I hear abolish ICE, I hear very much you know abolish immigration detention uh, as a as a high priority on that list. Um, so I'll leave that there. <laughs> I,
3: I, I, I can I can, I can go. You go for it. okay. Uh, I yeah. So I'll start and I'll echo echo a lot of what uh, Clara said. It's abolishing immigration detention, and what does that look like? Um, yeah we've seen it before it's it was it was fine before and i think you know what does immigration look like going and bringing this is bringing in kind of the human rights when a state has jurisdiction and they have the power of the state behind what they do and if the us has jurisdiction over the territory of the us with that jurisdiction Comes human right. There is that jurisdiction. Isn't just this like power? It's this like it's the legal idea of you don't have great power without great responsibility. There are limits on the power of the state. There are human rights limits on what the state can do. And so, what it will look like is a a, a nation that has some say over who can come and who can go, but they do it in a way that reflects reality. So. You know, the U.S. didn't, I mean, please correct me on my U.S., Mexico, Central America migration history, but for the majority of our history, we didn't, we knew people came and worked cyclically and seasonally, and we Mm -hmm. didn't have, we didn't have borders for those reasons, you know, we didn't, in effect, have borders, we didn't count people coming in and out, people came and went, and it's only really in the past, what is the history, like 100 years, that it's really... Even started being counted. And then only in the past very few years, where we started this expedited removal and really enforcing this. So there's certainly, and an, an, it's actually quite easy, easily imaginable, um, a visas program, an immigration program that just reflects the reality of people moving and people can do it without, uh, do it according to the law and states can do it according to their jurisdiction and guarantee everyone's rights and make it a safe process. I think it's very easy to
4: imagine. Yeah, abolishing eyes. Um, yeah, definitely uh, similar to what uh, folks have shared. Uh, no borders. Uh, we know that uh, the militarization of borders has created a lot of deaths and violence in, in both ends of the countries. Uh, and not only the border within US, um, US Mexico, but also the borders that are in Central America and, and around the world. And so, abolishing eyes is, is having a, a world without borders. Is having a world without uh, detention centers that continue to have all of these human rights violations, um, um, but also it, it, not to put in place another form of of agency that uh, that will say who can come here and who come not. And I think Pangea, um, you know, that's that part of their mission of like having the liberty of movement because like migration has happened throughout the history of. Of the human world. Um, and a lot of the, the migration stories, right, we know that uh, this country was created on uh, the back of of the forced migrations of black people, uh, right? We know that this country was also created on the genocide of indigenous people. So it's abolishing forms that will not continue to create uh, the labor on back of the Oppress and uh, oppress oppre, oppressed folks that are already marginalized. So for me, it would be that uh, no state agency that tells us who has the right to migrate and who is going to be forced to migrate. Because right now, with the caravan of Central American folks, uh, they're refugees, right, and they're being forced to migrate because of all of the U.S. imperialist policies that have been implemented throughout the world that are causing that crisis for humans to seek safety in other places, uh, but we come to the, to the United States and we are seeing that that criminalization is still here happening. And so, um, so yeah, it's a world with, where
1: we can be truly safe uh, and not be policed.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Quickly, I'll just add that um, immigration enforcement has always been racist. The Mexico border first uh, became regulated to keep out Chinese migrants who are utilizing that border entry to come into the US. And ICE as an agency is a post-9/11 phenomenon, so we don't even need to like look that further back to realize what it would be like to live without
2: ICE. Um, Though INS was not, you know, the best either.
1: And yeah,
5: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but the but the point is like ICE as, a, as an enforcement agency is like a very it's a relatively new thing. Um, I think mm-hmm. that, and, and this is the thing that happens like this is normalized in our minds, so it's hard to imagine a better future. But that's why we have these great panelists here to help us imagine that. <laughs> uh, does anyone else? Uh Kind of jumping off
7: what you just said, um, you did almost believe that the call to abolish ICE is a politically feasible one, because it might sound radical, but it is essentially just a call to defund a federal agency that was created in 2006. And we know Republicans have been calling for defunding federal agencies <laughs> <laughs> forever, this <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> really fair day Scrapping the surface, like yeah. abolishing ICE is much less dramatic than abolishing the EDA. Um, <laughs> and yet still for it. And if you do think it's politically feasible, how do we get Democrats on board? Because even ostensibly left of center, probably wrong to describe Kamala Harris as left of center, but you know, even she said like ICE has a purpose, ICE has a reason, ICE should exist. And so, how do we convince Democrats that this is a viable political platform? But it isn't even that radical. And a lot of
2: communities. Go for it. Yeah, I I think it's a great comment. I don't know. Maybe it's that the abolish language is not <laughs> the right way to to do that. Um, defund ICE. I mean, <clears throat> the funding issue is so enormous. You guys like, so, so since nineteen ninety six, as a share of the federal budget, immigration enforcement has a seven times greater share than it did in nineteen ninety six. It's huge money, and. Um, and you know the Trump administration's budget requests have only expanded those billions and billions of dollars that are dedicated to this abusive system. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's defund. I mean, one of the one of our um, an organization that we all work with, Detention Watch Network, has used defund hate as the way to discuss this. Defund ICE. Maybe the problem is abolish. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I think that is. And correct me if I'm
4: wrong, but. Detention centers do not only exist within the premise of the United States. There's also detention centers internationally, which are operated under the two main companies, GO and CCA. And so it's like also, okay, we're going to abolish or defund ICE in the United States, but that agency is still operating throughout the world. And so it's also like looking at that global... uh, scope of things. And also, um, I think that give, through like Dignity Down Detention, right? Like the goal was to, uh, to stop the contracting of detention centers within county jails, public and private. And so um, some of the, the things that we are still uh, thinking about is what's going to happen <coughs> if all of a sudden we don't have detention centers in California, if we are able to do that, right? Uh, What's going to happen with the folks that are still detained? Um, And I think folks in Orange County, there was a specific detention center for trans and queer folks um, and that got shut down and it was like a victory, but at the same time they're still detained, they're still under ICE and so there was a lot of advocacy efforts to to make sure that they were being released before getting transferred to out of state uh, to still be detained. And so I hope that we can defund eyes or abolish eyes, but also keep in mind like what's gonna happen with the thousands of lives that are right now in detention center. Um, and again, not to create another form of incarceration in that way.
5: I'm Kinsey. Uh, it's really exciting and rare to see four women who look like me on panel anywhere in Stanford. So that's <laughs> good Um, My question, kind of going off the last two, is um, obviously completely changing the system is probably what most of us in this room want and think is necessary. Um, but especially in the 2018 midterms, I know that a lot of people are going to be um, afraid to say, even fund ICE because this, while Trump is still present, they might feel like that's untenable whether it is or not. Um, So I wonder how you all balance fighting for shorter term victories, or incremental victories, like uh, DACA being reinstated, universal organization and stuff like that, um, while also not wanting us to get stuck in sort of this better but still unacceptable middle ground. Um, Yeah, I I just wonder if, if especially in these elections, are there certain policies that you're like, this is the lowest hanging fruit, let's at least do this? Or are you wanting to sort of hold out
2: to wait until we really can't overhaul the system. If that makes sense. I, I don't mean to go good. Yeah. I mean, so I it, um, even though Harris came out against the ban sort of the abolish ice op-ed that, that ran a couple weeks ago, she she did either already has or will today introduce the Dunn Act, which would, would really would limit ices expansion nationally not going it's a marker bill it's not going anywhere in the current Congress but but that's a sort of a you know the kind of things that we'd like to see I think we should be asking our leaders to be doing um, is to be taking imagining sort of concrete steps like you're saying that are incremental um, to me the the main sort of messaging and a base building challenge and I don't know if you guys feel the same way is getting mainstream Democrats to give up the idea that you can throw away people because they're criminals. Um, and that's a very hard problem in lots of contexts, not just, of course, like you, as you were saying, in the immigration context. Um, and it's something that we never succeeded in doing with Obama. He, he remained really deeply rooted in this idea that there were felons and there were families and that somehow felons don't have families, or I don't know. Um, but uh, I, to me I see the, the, the main goal of the movement needs to be the base building for that realization because if we don't have that realization then we can't build a new legislative and, and you know policy framework that actually respects rights.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, it's um, pushing the boundary of, of who's deserving to stay in the country and who's not because uh, that's what like, the continuous mainstream media again will continue to frame uh, the good, deserving immigrant. And we saw that with like the dream, the dreamer, right? A lot of undocumented youth uh, still identify themselves as dreamers, uh, but that connotation is very, that label is very problematic. Uh, and one is for like the continuous justification that students or college education people should be deserving of staying in the country because they have something to contribute to the economy and so on and so forth. Uh, but on the other side, we have like my parents, like my grandparents who have been in this country for way longer than myself and are the ones who are getting targeted to be, to be deported. And so, um, I, it's for, yeah, I think like working with Pangea in a lot of like deportation defense cases, uh, it's really transformed in the sense that we work in a case where a person is literally about to, is separated from their family. Um, but then we do see their political transformation from being like, uh, I'm going to call the police because that's who I know to call to be then like, no, this is wrong. Why Why is this happening? And then seeing like the bigger picture of how the systems work. And I think those are like important conversations because also uh, the thinking is changing, right, uh, of what is susceptible and what is not. Um, but yeah.
3: I can, yeah, I'll take a quick bite too. Uh, I think we, you know, if there's this conversation and there's these goalposts, you want to try to shift. You want to try to shift it. And, and I think we kind of take an approach of, range. I mean, we have a vision, and our vision is a place where people have the right to move. So if we don't say it, who's going to say it? Yeah. So we're, I don't, I think that we, we really try to stick, stick to that vision and what are the constructive ways and what are the positive ways that we can affect people, affect our clients, affect our community, uh, affect the broader community in the way that always stays true to our vision.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah also I'll just add really quickly um, critical resistance has really helped me in thinking about this exact question and they frame it as a reformist reform versus a liberatory reform and so like an example of this would be like oh there's a lot of sexual assaults that occur in immigration detention like what should be the solution oh let's have more women guards in immigration detention centers that's a reformist reform because it still preserves the system that you're trying to mm-hmm. to abolish or to change versus like So much sexual assault occurs in immigration detention centers, detention shouldn't exist as an enforcement scheme. Um, So, just thinking about whether or not your reform is further entrenching the system you're trying to change, or if it's moving towards what your utopic goal is, then that's a good way to kind of evaluate.
8: Jim. Thank you. So, you know, I'm one of the uh, organizers of this uh, debate, uh, or I and my role in the Standard Rights Center. And I wonder if we haven't got it wrong in thinking about abolish ICE, which is symptomatic. It's a body that enforces a body of law that I think is morally bankrupt. Uh, And I always am impressed, not in the best sense, about the way in which folks on the right frame debates in ways that favor the outcomes that uh, they promote, and we folks on the left don't do as good a job. I wonder if, if the whole issue isn't resolved in the idea of decriminalizing migration, and if that's not a better frame, a better way to think about this, because if, if, if migrating movement of human beings, which is the norm of human beings as long as they've been human beings, if, if that is not criminal, if that's decriminalized, then of course you don't need ICE to incarcerate people for doing something that is not criminal, or to arrest them, or to seize them. And I'm wondering if, if there's not a frame like that that might make more sense. And that maybe we should uh, be pushing. But I just wanted to throw that out to four people who work in this area and have uh, thoughts on this, and trying to figure out how we can stop losing the framing battle, you know, by opposing, you know, partial birth abortion. <laughs> you know, win by opposing partial birth abortions, and by talking about women's reproductive autonomy. It's your body, it's not my body. I can't legislate for it. But again, just sort of an idea.
2: I kind of worry that decriminalized might be the might be analogous to partial birth. In the sense that we're including the word criminal, right? Like mm-hmm. in the and we're not quite de-uncriminalized de- un uncriminalized. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, um normalize or yeah. regulate. Regulate um love <laughs> love migration. I don't know. <laughs>
4: Yeah, I (laughs) come back to that, but I think it's also like uh, the historical, as people folks have mentioned, the historical racist loss of of being criminalized and immigration, and it's also like acknowledging that we do live in a capitalistic world, and it's also a way that detention centers have made profits, right? By justifying the criminalization of people to continue to make this business and this profit, and so it's also looking about like the ways that the capitalist system continues to hurt human rights and uh, and people. So, but yeah, I don't have a concrete answer to to that. Yeah,
3: I don't I don't have the catch. I don't know if I have the catchphrase that you're looking for. But <laughs> one of the dis- I don't know if it's captured in this idea that um, the cis, It's a civil. It's a it's a it's not a crim when it's not a criminal issue it's a civil issue and that's why you don't get a lawyer so there's just this disconnect either it's a criminal issue and you get a lawyer funded by the state you get a public defender and it's a whole different system or it's just a civil infraction which is like getting a ticket which gay everyone gets and it's totally normal so i think there is there's kind of this room for this understanding how we think of it as one but it's really another and, and and we're we're getting it wrong on both we're getting it wrong on both areas and mm-hmm. and also i i also like you know the the human human rights the human right to liberty and security of person is, I i i know it's not used a lot but i always come back to it because it's something that resonates with us it, you know and and it's it resonates with um, some of the, when you hear those words, liberty and security of person, it, it brings up, you know, like the revolution and all of these things. And it's this idea that the government can't throw you in can't incarcerate you. It can't throw you in detention uh, for without due process and for no reason. And I like that. I, I like thinking of it in that positive way. You have liberty and security of person rather than always like no detention, no detention, no detention. But I'm not sure that's a... Catchphrase.
6: <laughs> yeah, I also just want to echo the appreciation for the panel. Like, I, I've only been at this school for like a year, but I was like, oh, I'm like, i don't know what I'm <laughs> was just a an advertised. Everything else is what happened I appreciate it a lot. Um, I guess, like, for me, the question I wanted to bring up was how to think, like, I, I struggle with thinking about similar to the last few questions, like, this abolish ICE idea, um, because in, in terms of the, the reformist reforms or liberatory reforms, like abolishing anything, and like, like I think on, on a personal level, like my dad came from Guatemala, and like I don't think my da- and it's weird, it's like you know he came from a country that was destabilized by U.S. imperialism and the CIA to the United States to get some freedom, you know, <laughs> you know to, to, get, to get jobs. It's like this interesting contradictory reality, um, but. It's like we want to abolish ICE, yes, but there's just like this broader set of conditions in which people who are undocumented and just working class people in general go through in, in a capitalist and imperialist country like this. And I, I, just you know you can abolish ICE and then what? You know people are still going to be paid low wages. People are still going to be leaving their homelands, like a lot of our families have had to do. And people don't necessarily want to do that, which is why I have a problem with the "migration is beautiful" kind of slogan. it's like, yeah, yes, I get it for sure. It is, and migrant people are beautiful. But at the same time, it's like. We don't want to exist in this global order where people are forced to uproot themselves and be displaced. So I'm curious, is is, isn't everything sort of becoming a reformist reform if we don't (laughs) start to address the like the total package of capitalism and imperialism? And if so, how do we do that in a practical way that actually doesn't just rely on the Democrats? Like I'm very concerned about the Democratic (laughs) (laughs) even in the questions. You know, like that's very troublesome. I feel like they're the the main reason that got us here in the first place. It got us Trump in a lot of ways. I mean, I don't think that's controversial, but but anyway, just how do we uh, yeah, how do we extend from like a particularist particularistic demands to a more kind of like broader program? Because otherwise that like we're gonna lose. Future issues are set up <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> can take more issues. More issues <laughs>
2: I mean, one thing I can't see from where I'm sitting in an international organization is this stuff is global, yeah. right? You have um, you have the rise of authoritarian populists who are Fearmongering and scape about migrants and scapegoating migrants as criminals in order to justify campaigns of rights abuses like all over the world. And um, I mean, I know you know that, but like that makes the problem to me. I mean, I think that that just puts sort of another you know light on why this question that you're asking is so important and so difficult to answer, which is um, that so-called democracies around the world are are. Degrading <laughs> rapidly um, for, for a lot of and a lot of them on this very crucible on this question that we're trying to to solve um, so it makes the stakes really high <laughs> in terms of answering that question, but um, it doesn't necessarily uh, you know get us farther um, except to say that rights uh, struggles everywhere interlinked, perhaps. Um, so the actions that we take in order to struggle for immigrant rights in the US are linked of course to to all of the struggles you know currently what's happening in Nicaragua you know to, or to you know to Guatemala or whatever. I mean these are all sort of you know interlinked interlinked issues.
4: Yeah, definitely the intersection of movement is super important. Um, and I think like as immigrant rights folks, we need to continue to challenge ourselves in that way and continue to uh have that intersectionality with like the criminal justice uh, folks that are are doing uh, this work because uh, we're seeing this like new way of system like immigration right of like uh, immigrants being incarcerated twice but also uh, as as immigrants also not to replicate the same forms of anti-blackness and also not to replicate the same forms of classism right uh, and I and I see this a lot in 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 in, in the immigrant rights movement where, especially like with the Dream Act, um, we got, uh, our organization got a, a lot of back, backlash from younger undocumented folks uh, outside of California when we did a, when we uh, halted the Pelosi action in San Francisco. Uh, and us, we, we wanted to like have not just a Dream Act for undocumented undocumented folks, youth, uh, but uh, a solution for all of us. And so we say like 11 million because that's an estimate of how many undocumented folks are living in the country. And a lot of uh, younger undocumented youth uh Came out to us and say, "Why are you disrespecting your ally? <laughs> why are you? Uh, why are you? Uh, you know, let's just take what where they're giving us." And and for us, it's like, look, the the Democrats are not gonna give us that liberation that we're looking for. Like that's not the solution for us. And also, there's like sense of entitlement because um, I I deserve this 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 form of documentation, um, and so. Yeah, it there's just like a lot, but I think that having that intersectionality of movements will continue to like link our struggles even more, more, more stronger because you know for for we know this that the, the government continues to operate under tactics of divide and conquer, and that's ultimately what we don't want. Um, but to put at the forefront the most directly impacted uh, people, and those are uh, working class folks. Those are Black folks, those are undocumented folks, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, but, but yeah.
1: <laughs> Unfortunately, we're out of time. But please join me in thanking our three panelists. Today.